0: a reading from the letter of James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I continue to be fascinated by all the various ways that our cultural lives and our religious lives mirror each other. And it's interesting to me, particularly, that we live in an age of armchair quarterbacks, Everybody wants to be a couch coach. If you're a sports fan, if you like sports ball, (laughs) you'll know that from the comfort of our living rooms or the neighborhood sports bar, we watch, we sit, we assess the refs, we assess the players, the coaches, we offer up impassioned thoughts on what they could have done differently or better. And what's interesting is that it seems that the more vocal we get in our critiques, the more we seem to forget that we're not actually playing, right? We're just sitting there watching. We didn't show up to practice. We didn't go through conditioning routines till our bodies ached for oxygen. We haven't radically limited our diets for optimal fueling. We're not in the middle of a giant field with thousands of screaming, insane, drunk people all yelling at us to do something different. We're just watching. It seems to me that this same phenomenon is on display for us in our religious life. It's very easy to be critical of other people, to sit as a spectator. And here again, it seems to me that the louder our criticisms are, the more we fail to realize that we are not playing. There's something about sitting in judgment of others that almost necessitates us being on the sidelines rather than on the field. If you'll allow me a bit of a historical rabbit trail, it's also very interesting to me that at the Reformation, one of the driving issues that brought about the Reformation was that of clericalism. The liturgy of the church was such that it was basically the ordained clergy who were professional Christians and everybody else was just a spectator. The Church had all but lost the idea of the priesthood of all believers. But weirdly, in this bizarre turn of events, as the Protestant communities, especially the radical Protestant communities, continue to develop their practices apart from the historic rootedness of the Church and her liturgy, they have essentially come full circle. So that now there's this professional class and a class of spectators. Many of our local gatherings are set up like theaters. There's a stage where people are working, and there's a seating area where people are spectating. Much of our worship stylings have become nothing more than entertainment, where the majority sit and watch a few people work. And what happens is we end up sitting in judgment, because we're on the sidelines, not on the field. And again, we take up the mantle of our first parents in our attempts to be the arbiters of what's right and wrong. And in so doing, we take the very thing that is meant to stand in judgment of us, and we put ourselves in judgment of it. And James seems insistent here in his letter to the churches that to do so is to live in a sort of practical atheism. After all, there is only one lawgiver and judge of all, and it sure ain't us. And if we're pretending like it is us, that's tantamount to denying God's existence. Now, as someone who just walks around feeling guilty all the time, I want you to know, this is not a finger wag. We don't do this consciously. None of us are walking in here going, well, let's see what they get wrong tonight. Can't wait to put it on my blog. Is anyone blogging still? (laughs) But we have to understand that we have been shaped by a system wherein most of us, unbeknownst to ourselves, we enter to the gathered church almost like property assessors. We come with our own agenda, our own grid for good and evil, our own ideas about what the music should be like or the sermon should say. And I should also point out, none of this is a clever way of me saying, you don't get to complain about anything I do, so nanner nanner. That's not it at all. Rather, it's to say that none of us should enter this place as assessors. We are not property assessors, we are the property. We are here to be assessed by the living God who has declared to all people that he will one day judge all the earth by one man and he has corroborated this claim by raising that man, Jesus, from the dead. As we heard last week in James' letter, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It takes pride to come in as the assessor, it takes humility to come in and be assessed by the living God. James, perhaps, uh, has never been given credit for the guy who invented the 12-step program, or the the 10-step program, rather. He's got 10 steps here for humility. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, weep, turn laughter to mourning, and humble yourself. Similarly to last week as we looked at James' letter, so here he's drawing again from the Old Testament in much of this language. In this case, he's alluding to the sacrificial and liturgical life of Israel. The language of drawing near to God isn't about some amorphous inner resolve. It's an allusion to what Moses told Aaron, the high priest. Aaron was to draw near to the altar at the tabernacle and offer the sacrifice for sin, for atonement for himself and the entire community of Israel. James is using this phrase as shorthand to alert us that to draw near to God is to do the work of the liturgy. It's to be in the place of sacrifice. It is to enter into God's divine presence and be assessed by him and as we are inevitably found lacking, to throw ourselves upon his mercy and offer our sacrifice in hope. The command to cleanse our hearts is also an allusion to this sacrificial ritual in the Old Testament. The priest would undergo a ritual washing before entering into the place of sacrifice. You can see this echoed in our own liturgy as the celebrant washes his hands before turning to the work of Eucharist. The hands, of course, are a a synecdoche, they're they're a stand-in for the whole person, as James so quickly follows it up with the need for internal cleansing, purify your hearts. As he so bluntly put it in last week's text, our divisions and wars spring from the inner conflict of our double-minded, divided hearts. In a few weeks, we're going to find ourselves entering Advent, which is a season of anticipation, yes. But it's also a season of preparation for Christ's arrival, which will always, in a certain sense, necessitate our laughter, turning to lament, because Christ's arrival is always an arrival of judgment. Now, James is not telling us that we should not be joyful even as we anticipate the arrival of our judge, but he is getting at this very strange reality that the proud seem only ever able to laugh because the proud are unable to estimate themselves correctly and they're unable to lament their own frailty and failure. The proud may acknowledge that there is brokenness out there, but that acknowledgement often leads to rage rather than lament, whereas the humble see themselves clearly. They see the brokenness of the world, clearly, and they lament because they acknowledge their complicity in that brokenness. As Father Alexander Schmemann so beautifully put it, Christian lament is characterized by the sadness of my exile, of the waste I have made with my own life. But it's also the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness, the joy of recovered desire for God and the peace of the recovered home. That's what it means to turn your laughter into mourning. It's to recognize the exile, the waste that we have made, and also the brightness of God's presence. This is another way in which the gospel message is so gloriously displayed for us in the Eucharistic liturgy of the church, because in humbling ourselves, as James strongly suggests to us, God exalts us. In drawing near to God, God draws near to us like the father who runs out to greet his prodigal son. We don't have to enter this place as perfect people. We do have to enter it honestly. And when we enter here in submission to God, rather than as assessors, When we draw near to God in humility, having had our actions and motives cleansed by his piercing word and spirit, we are then brought into the throne room of God to his very banqueting table where he feeds us with himself. I've alluded to this at least a half a dozen ways over the last couple of years, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of what it is about being human. As we hear this story, from Israel's exodus that just sounds so familiar, doesn't it? The parameters have changed, but it's still the same old story. Oh, well, I really need this. Boom. Here, you have it. I love you. Ah, really? Is this all we have? We've got to somehow really start to apprehend what is happening in the liturgy. We have to get clear in our minds that we're not here simply to remind ourselves of something that took place a long time ago and a long ways away. We're also not here to achieve some sort of zen, some sort of inner peace that's going to help us get through another anxious week. And if we're here primarily for education, to learn some things about God, then of course, attending the Mass is optional. You could podcast 1,000 sermons a week more educational and engaging than mine with better jokes that are better timed, like that one, for example, not timed very well. (laughs) If we're here primarily for community, to meet up with friends, then of course attending Mass is optional. There are any number of groups and activities that you can engage in that will allow you to meet people that share your interests and outlook. If we're here primarily to have our chakras aligned, to get our emotional lives situated a bit better, then of course attending mass is optional. I could recommend within a half mile radius about a billion yoga studios, or some great day spas with soaking pools and quiet music that would be far more conducive to the goal of inner peace. But you were made out of breath and dirt spirit, and earth. You were made in the image of God, which means, in part, that you were designed to stand before the consuming fire of God's presence. And from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of John's apocalypse, the world was always meant to function like a cosmic temple where man and woman might enter into the presence of God and fall down in worship. And that is why we're here. St. John Chrysostom said that in the Eucharist celebration, the sanctuary is filled with countless angels who adore the divine victim immolated on the altar. Yesterday was the feast of St. Michael and all angels. I would remind you again, we are living in a world that is filled with spiritual beings. And there is a battle going on all around us. And in this place, there are innumerable angels gathered to gaze upon the very way in which God loves us and feeds His. They long to understand more about God by seeing how he feeds his people. In another homily, Chrysostom said in reference to our singing of the Sanctus in the liturgy, he says, do you recognize this voice? Is the voice singing our voice, or is it the voice of the seraphim? He says, this voice is at the same time our voice and the voice of the seraphim, thanks to Christ, who has broken down the dividing wall, who has reconciled heaven and earth, making two become one. Indeed, this hymn was sung before, only in heaven. But at the moment the Lord has deigned to descend to earth, he brought this song also to us. Christ, the divine victim, the Lamb who was slain, offered himself up as a sacrifice once for all. It wasn't a sacrifice that needed to happen over and over again. But to assume that because it's a sacrifice that happens once for all, that this then means that we can just make our way through the world barely making reference to this sacrifice is completely backward. When St. John was given a vision of the throne room of God, he saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain from before the foundation of the world. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice exists in the timeless realm of God, and we, in answering this command to draw near to God, are brought into that sacrifice. This is the place where we encounter God and are made right with him because of what Jesus has done. And of course... In entering in, you will have your mind enlightened. Your spirit will find peace. You will find yourself in the midst of true community. None of those things are bad, and none of them are missing. But if you come here with those as your main objective, you will have missed the reality of what we are doing. We are being lifted up into heaven where the Ancient of Days is seated on a throne of fire, and there is a stream of fire flowing out from before him, and he is surrounded with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels standing before him in worship as they cover themselves with their wings, as they exist in awe of his terrible glory. A glory that can make untold universes out of nothing. And bring to nothing all the power of the devil. My favorite Eucharistic hymn is one of the most ancient hymns that the church sings. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God, to earth descending, comes our homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way, as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day, comes the powers of hell to vanquish as the darkness clears away. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia! Alleluia, alleluia, Lord Most High. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.